Today's scripture reading comes from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin is a person Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were brought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, you might have gotten the email, and I slapped a PG-13 rating on uh, tonight, but, but uh, you as a parent, uh, make that call. Like, you know your kid better than I do. You know where they are. And so uh, we want you to gauge um, the appropriateness. Uh, to that, you might say, um, I have no idea what you're going to say, buddy. Um, and, and you're right. Um, so we're not going to mess around. Let's jump into the pool right away. Um, these are the issues, the sexual issues that we have in the city of Corinth, the ancient city of Corinth. Um, here we are in the, uh, the latter part of the first century. Um, here it is, uh, this issue that Paul is writing to the Corinthians about that others had written to Paul to let them know about is that there was um, a guy who was having a relationship with his stepmom and was in the believing community. Um, now, a lot of commentators think that it was actually his natural mother, but uh, let's take the lesser as uh, the possibility and say probably a stepmom. Um, uh, the other issue, and I brought this up in another sermon, is that this was actually part of the socially accepted economic machine of Corinth. They were known around the ancient world for this, is that there was an Acro-Corinth, there was a hill above Corinth, um, and they had these marble steps go up to, it was a temple to Aphrodite, and it was basically sexual tourism, but the town, it was, uh, for the city of Corinth, it was accepted normal, right? Like, like um, you're working, um, you close up shop, you go to the temple, you come back, you eat dinner, you go to, like, this is just normal land in the city of Corinth. Um, then you have another idea. So not just your, your religious experience attached to sexuality is that you had a cultural, uh, um, acceptable thing that happened in the city of Corinth and beyond in other city states, but we're limiting it to Corinth tonight. And it's this, it's called the toga virilis, like the toga of uh, manhood. And so it's a coming of age story is a man would take his son and let's say he's 14, 15 or 16 and they would go to banquet. 
and it's culturally acceptable. And after banquet, you enter into some sort of sex play and you get your toga of virility. You get your toga of being, becoming a young man. Um, that's, that's what is happening in Corinth. Now that is just normal land. That's not crazy. That's just what happens in Corinth. Um, and then the other sexual issue that we have just from first Corinthians, there are other issues in the Bible. We're not addressing those. We're just talking about Corinth. The other issue is this is they send a letter to Paul and they say this, they say, um, because uh, there's all these issues of people that uh, Paul's trying to, uh, they have questions about like how a Jesus follower should act. So Paul is writing back. And, um, so they preemptively, they write this letter like, Hey, you, we know you're kind of upset with all these weird sexual practices we have in Corinth. So, so they get a jump on Paul and they write to him and they say, we know it's bad for a man to be with a woman. So, so we're going to solve the problem for you, Paul, is we're going to stop having sex. That Mary, even married, like we know it's bad. So abstinence is the key. And Paul and Paul appropriately says also to that is crazy. So they're really twisted. So think about it. The, the, the solution to a problem cannot be the abstinence of the problem, but using the problem rightly. So these are the issues that are in Corinth. Now we have some LA similarities. I said at the beginning of our series is like, there's a lot of similarities to LA and to ancient Corinth. And this is no um, exception. So you know this, whether it's Tinder or Grindr or hookup apps, um, we have a culture that it is expected that at the end of the arrangement, there is sex and there, there's no necessary callbacks. There's no necessary commitment. It's just what is. All right. We have that culture. It's broader than LA, but we're just talking about LA and Corinth. Um, we have in SGV, I'm going to talk about this a little bit later, is we have massage parlors and brothels that, depending on the studies you read, bring in about half a billion to a billion dollars in cash just in the LA basin, based on the last study that I read this last week. Crazy. All right. Um, we have a an assumption of this is if you've been in the public schools, um, if it's in South Pasadena or elsewhere, you know this, there's an assumption that sexual activity is actually a normal coming of age story outside of just coming outside of puberty. It is a normal, normal thing. And we're, what we're going to do is we're going to prep our young men and women for that normal activity. Nothing to see here. Yawn. That's like, that's mandatory public school sexual education in health class. Um, we have a cultural bipolarity and I'm just talking about LA now. We have a cultural bipolarity when it comes to sex. And that is this bipolarity. Um, one, it's nothing. It's like scratching your nose or getting a LaCroix out of the cooler because you're thirsty. Like it means Nothing. That's one bipolarity. The other pole of the bipolarity is this. It means everything. It means everything. Like we're going to pursue the greatest experience of all time. And I might even attach my very identity to it. Do you see the, bi- the polarity? The bipolarity, it, act- it means nothing or it means absolutely everything. That's an LA culture section. That is a cultural LA sexual mores, M-O-R-E-S. 
So does Christianity have anything to say to this culture, both in Corinth and in Los Angeles? Does, does Christianity have anything to say that is healthy and beautiful and non-destructive in a vigorous, beautiful vision of sexuality? Does Christianity have anything to say to both Corinth and to LA with their practices? Does it? I think it does. Here's the shape of what we're going to talk tonight. Um, one, I want to talk about this, how cultural conventions, that means popular opinion about sexuality in Corinth in LA, cultural conventions are sometimes correct. They actually are. Sometimes they're correct, and they're often unreliable. Next, I want to talk about this, how your individual, my individual sexuality is actually very, very communal which is a very unpopular statement, but I'm getting it out there. Three, I want to talk about there is a power, there is a power in Christianity to heal sexual brokenness. And so the, I, I want, th- those are the areas I want to cover. Let's look at this. Uh, let's, let's look at how cultural conventions, both in Corinth both in L- and L.A., cultural conventions are sometimes correct, but often unreliable. Um, let me give you examples where um, it, it, uh, our culture, our popular convention, popular wisdom is actually correct. So um, I'll, I'll use Corinth first. In this section, and this is in um, the chapter before six, it's in five, um, there's this description of this guy who's having a relationship with his stepmom. And Paul says this, hey, uh, Corinth, like with all your sexual junk, um, even you guys think that stepmom thing is wrong, right? So some, he goes, he goes go, look, look, everybody outside the church in Corinth, they think that's kind of weird. They, have, they lift their eyebrows to the stepmom thing. Okay, so sometimes a culture can actually get it right. They're like, oh yeah, even, that's Paul's argument. Even the outsiders think that's naughty. Okay, and if the outsiders think it's naughty, maybe you should press pause on that activity. So sometimes society gets it right. It would be like this. It would be like hashtag me too, is there was an understanding in our culture that a power differential, a power and a positional um, uh, wealth differential um, made a predatory environment to happen. The culture can get it right. You're like, yeah, I agree with that. That's really messed up. That's wrong. Let me give you another one. Um, uh, uh, (laughs) This still happens right now. Um, And and a a culture, not even a believing community, is let's say you have some, I don't know, I'm going to make up a random, let's say you have a 38-year-old dude, and um, all of a sudden he starts dating a 19-year-old. Legal, right? But the culture, not even Christians, they're like, we have some questions, we have questions about that. Like, how did that come about? Right? So, so sometimes a culture can get something right about sexuality, and Paul, Paul admits that in 1 Corinthians. Um, but popular convention, popular opinion can actually often be unreliable. And l- let me show this to you. So 4,000 years ago, um, uh, we're talking uh, Hebrew antiquity. Um, You could have uh, a powerful um, person or wealthy person, a ruler, and they could could take and sleep with a woman with impunity. 
This 4,000 years ago, um, um, there could be rape, there could be possession, there could be no legal jurisprudence to make restitution or even address the problem in sort of some punitive, uh, punitive legal way. Uh, uh, 4,000 years ago, multiple wives, normal. Socially acceptable. Um, we have in the biblical corpus a time where multiple wives granted um, they could be possession was normalized, spoils of war was normalized. This is 4,000 years ago. Um, you have popular convention endorsing it and sn- st- stamping their opinion on saying, this is, fi- this is what we do. This is what we do. How dare you? How dare you say anything? Like, this is what we do. Everybody does it. It's approved on all stratas of society. Yep, that's what happens. That's what happens. Um, 2,000 years ago, the refined Greek Hellenists um, didn't just allow, but encouraged pederasty with young boys 2,000 years ago. That was woke, progressive sexuality, and it's approved by popular convention. Everybody thinks that's okay. Um, This is it. If that can be true 2,000 years ago and 4,000 years ago, what you can't do is say that it's universally wrong. You can't do that. You can say sexuality is culturally formulated. You can't say that. That's allowed. But you cannot say it's universally. Like like, um, uh, 4,000 years ago, they don't want moderns to say, hey, we were wrong because popular convention dictated that it could be so culturally formulated. But then you have to admit something. You have to admit that our current sexual ethic is just culturally formulated and it doesn't have the strength of universal rightness or wrongness. No one can say in LA or in Corinth that you've discovered something that is a timeless absolute when we talk about sexual ethics. No one can say that. Um, Let me show you this. Um, 16 years ago, um, has anybody watched The Office? Right, we have a lot of people. It was number one on Netflix for a long, long time running. It came out 16 years ago. And there was a recent interview with Steve Carell, and he said this. He said, we could not make that show today. What we said about race and sexuality, we could have never said just 16 years ago. Do you see how that changes pretty radically? Um, We have this modern assumption Right now, whatever we think about sexual ethics, that is going to be ridiculed 50 years from now and 1,000 or 5,000 years from now. Um, And let me me just say this. Our sexual ethic in Los Angeles is going to be ridiculed, not out of some morality parade, just because the culture changed. We're not even talking about Christianity. Another culture will just look at it and say, you guys were crazy. Um... Uh, 50 years, 1,000 years from now, they're going to say self-selected gender assignation 
That was a little weird, guys. Formation of personality and identity based on an ethic of desire. Guys, did you not see that back then? This is what they're going to say this, and they're not going to even be Christians, by the way. Um, uh, it, all right, so if my eight-year-old says this, uh, Dad, I want a Kit Kat bar. I want a Kit Kat bar. And I say, no, you already had one today. Um, no more Kit Kat bars. But Dad, I desire this thing. Um, I desire it so much. Give me, give me, give me that Kit Kat bar. And I say, no. No. And he says, but yes, but yes, my entire identity and personhood is now attached to my desire for the Kit Kat. I am the Kit Kat cat with a burning for that Kit Kat. So respect that and give me that Kit Kat. I don't know if he's in a free verse now all of a sudden. Do not step in the way of my Kit Kat desires. My desire is the core of who I am. Stop hating on my Kit Kat love. It's a part of me. You will destroy me if you deny me my Kit Kat desire. And that's when I say, uh, no, you can't have one. And don't, don't go ask your mom either. All right, we laugh at something lesser, but why, why, why would we use that same argument for something even uh, greater, more volatile, more precious, more delightful, with greater vulnerabilities, with greater fragility, with greater possibilities for what abuse and commodification and misuse? Why would we ever say, We're, let's use the ethic of desire? Why would we ever do it for the greater? I would never do it for the lesser, for why would I allow it for the greater? A hundred years from now, and I, I won't be around, but I would love it if like they picked up some random recording and said, oh my goodness, he said this a hundred years ago. A hundred years from now, academics, not even Christians, are going to be amused at our ethic of desire. They're going to be amused by it. And the prominence of personhood attached to sexual identity, they're going to be amused by that. And, and in the lecture hall, they're going to say, how antiquated. And the lecture hall will laugh along with the professor. It might, it might be virtual or a robot. I don't know. A thousand years from now, they are going to scorn, mock, and laugh, and roundly despise whatever our sexual ethic is that was culturally formulated. If it's fluidity or, or, or gender choice or hormone therapy, whatever it is, whatever is sex woke right now, a thousand years from now, they're going to be like, that was a little strange, L.A. That was a little strange. I'm not even saying that as a Christian. I'm just saying that as a student of historical cycles. That's all I'm, gonna, that's all I'm saying. Um, Mary Eberstadt, uh, she used to be at the Hoover Institution at Stanford. Um, and she has this facet, she has multi, she has a string of like three essays. I commend them to you. But one essay in particular that she wrote is, um, she says, just 50 to 75 years from now, people are going to look at big porn like we used to look at big tobacco. And in that essay, she said, what silliness, this future society is going to look back and say, what silliness was LA thinking about back then? Like, why did we think unfettered, ungaged, unfiltered, unrationed access to those images would be healthy for a broader communal societal aims? 
Did you know that the proposals for DSM-6, it's the psychological disorder book, um, um, has an avalanche of new sexual proposals for disorders, an avalanche. Like, it's going, it's going to take a, a yeoman's job to figure this out. Here's the point, here's the point. If you are looking to a broader culture to formulate your sexual ethic and give you directional wisdom what to do about sexuality, are you, doing, are you willing to do this? Are you willing to say, okay, I'm willing to absorb everything it has, but I know that half of it's going to be nonsense and half of it's going to be good, and I may not know which one is which. No, are you willing to submit your own sexuality, your own personhood to a culturally formulated ethic, knowing that what? It may be changed by popular convention 50 years from now. There has to be something more absolute, more unchanging, more committed to your health and joy than just putting something on red and black and just hoping it's sexually right. There's got to be something more to that with something so beautiful and precious. So Christianity is offering a sexual ethic that goes unchanged over the centuries. Um, two, I want to look at this. Um, individual sexuality is communal. It's communal. Um, because it's unchanged, the sexual ethic, um, I, I do want to recognize something is that um, even tonight, that sexual ethic will, will, will butt up against things that we hold in prize. And in the middle there, there's going to be fire. There's going to be conflict in your own heart and mind. Like, like an unchanging sexual ethic will cha- necessarily challenge some things. It's going to do that to me. It's going to bother me tonight. It's going to bother you tonight. Um, because we desire things. It's that ethic of desire. Um, Aldous Huxley, he wrote this in a great little essay called Ends and Means. And I love uh, Huxley's intellectual honesty here. Uh, He said this, he said, I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning and consequently assumed that it had none and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. For myself, as no doubt for most of my friends, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. The supporters of this system claimed that it was embodied the meaning, the Christian meaning they insisted of the world. There was one admirably simple method of confuting these people and justifying ourselves in our erotic revolt. We would deny that the world had any meaning whatever. That's a stunning admission of intellectual honesty. I wanted to do something, so I just changed the ethic. The Christian ethic, of course, is going to push up against what you want and what I want. But I want you to ask yourself, uh, what do you want to entrust this beautiful, precious thing to? Yourself and your desire or a power greater than your desire? So whatever is currently lauded as normal, wonderful, progressive, and freedom-giving, I just want you to know it might not agree with the Christian ethic. Uh, Now, automatically, everyone assumes something about the Christian ethic is that it's meant to prohibit 
And it's, it's meant to stop the fun, stop the party, restrict the individual, stop expression, stop sensation, and just don't do it. Like the Corinthians thought Paul would say. I think that's an assumption of the Christian ethic. But I want you to see there's radical goodness for a Christ, Judeo-Christian ethic that is connected to beautiful social correction of injustice. I want, I'm going to make this connection. The ethic does something brilliant and good. So in Exodus, um, God gives the Ten Commandments, and one of those Ten Commandments is do not commit adultery, and everyone messes up. The whole, the whole, the whole shebang, the whole people of God, outside, inside, doesn't matter. And then he goes on in Exodus 21, um, describing things that should happen when they get all out of whack with that Christian ethic. So in Exodus 21... There is a pat, there's a legal stipulation for what happens when someone of wealth, someone of power, someone a ruler takes someone else in a sexual way with impunity. And it says in antiquity, 4000 years ago, this was stunning in its social correction of injustice. It was saying, "No, you cannot have sex with impunity." We are not, we are going to have some punitive restoration and buyback. So if someone was raped unjustly, usually a young person, they would say, you have to pay an enormous amount of money to make that right. And that hadn't happened before. That was radical, what? Injustice being corrected by a Judeo-Christian ethic. There is a redemption. You, there, she is not yours to do with your pleas. You are going to have to pay. You're going to have to pay. It was a real social corrective. Um, It will do that in a refined Greek Hellenistic world where pederasty with young boys was okay. Totally uh, culturally accepted. And the Christian ethic, um, I I just want you to get a a grasp of something. That idea in, in classical Greek, I'm just saying it was just as aggressively woke as your woke sexual opinions now. And the Christian ethic said, no, that is not the design. And it was protective of those that were vulnerable and had no power. In and against what? Their butts up against a Christian ethic, butts up against something for a social corrective. It'll do that. The Judeo-Christian ethic enters that 70 years ago, you had this 1950s vision often attached, I think, inappropriately to Christianity where um, the male runs the show and the woman stays home and she should dress brightly, put on uh, makeup, make dinner and fulfill all her her husband's sexual needs. And the Judeo-Christian ethic enters there and says, no, a marriage is not transactional like that. It's not. And... Uh, a Judeo-Christian ethic says this, um, the male is not the dictator of a home, a male is what the head servant of the home. See, it enters into a place like that and says, that's unchanged, yeah, that's unchanged from a long time, right? It, 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 It butts up against a 1950s sexual ethic. It'll do it now. Melissa reminded me about this, um, 
we've been involved in Kyrgyzstan, but I don't know if you know this, but the Oak House is this sub-ministry from the church that's in Kyrgyzstan, and the Oak House takes in girls um, in Kyrgyzstan. They age out of socially funded orphanages. They age out at about 14 or 15, and it's either figure it out, go to the streets. And so what happens when they go to the streets? They get used up. They get used up. And Oak House says, no, no, guess what? You come here. You come here in safety. You come here while you learn and go to school and you have relationships and community. And there's what? There's an economy of safety, of vitality. That's real. You know what? They're trying to start something for boys because the boys are used up just as much. So a Judeo-Christian ethic enters in and says, you know what? We will correct social injustice through a proper Christian ethic. Here's the biblical ethic, and I'm going to limit this to 1 Corinthians now. There's a, this is not exhaustive tonight, but I'm going I'm to zone in on what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Here is the biblical ethic from Paul addressing almost all of the craziness, the sexual craziness in Corinth. Here it is. I'm going to give it to you. <laughs> it's really brief. You're not your own. You're not your own. He says this, 1 Corinthians 19 and 20. Don't you know, this is on the heels of the sexual problems in 5 and 6. He says this, don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You're not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. What's he saying? Sex is communal. You are joined to a community. You're joined to a community. You are connected to something. You are unified to something. Um, I'm going to get this phrase from Lauren Winner, who wrote Real Sex, the book Real Sex. And she says this phrase, sex is, by definition, a communal task. Well, I've never heard it called a task before. You're attached to another community. All sins are outside the body, but Paul says, oh, this one, it's communal. It's always attached to more people than you. Always attached. You're joined with someone else with sex. Paul says this. um, This is in the second half of verse 18 in chapter 6. He says, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Why? He's driving at this picture that you are attached to something else. You're attached to something else. You're attached to a broader community. Um, There is a great essay. I commend this essay to you. It is really great. I mean, I don't know if I can be more any more effusive, but I read it this past week, and it's called The Body and the Earth by Wendell Berry. And he has this term and this idea that he unpacks in this essay. And here's the term and his idea. He calls, "I, I am for household sex. Now, it's not what you mean. It's not like just at the house, right? This is what his communal idea is. 
He says, in a household, in the economy of a household, you have partners and you have a workmate and um, you, there is play that happens in a household economy and you chop food together in a household economy and you eat together and you build things together in this household economy and you imagine together in this household economy and you have mutual aspirations and ideas and goals and hobbies and tasks and, and there, it's, a, it's a place of learning where you didn't know something but you know something now and you're progressing towards learning more. Um, it's a household economy of innovation and, and suffering and tragedy happens within this household economy and um, failure happens even in that household economy where you just mess up and you mess up royally and he says this um, sex is always a part of that household economy and, and this is his powerful point he said sex assumes that there's a bigger community it assumes it and he said to pull away from that, to say, to say that sex can exist away from this, lonely, ashamed, behind here, disguising it, doing whatever you want, covering it up, not letting people know, just doing your thing, finding your deviancy, whatever it is, whatever that is. It means that it is solo and it's necessarily shaming and isolating from the rest of the community. It's necessary that it happens that way. And he says, no wonder um, the, the ethics attached to sex, sexuality can be wildly way, wayward is because it's been pulled from his household idea. Um, deviancy cannot be judged by the economy of the common. That was his phrase. I thought it was really poetic. I'll say it again. Deviancy cannot be judged by the economy of the common because it's a far apart. All right, this is what we see in LA and Corinth. And, and this kind of distills a lot of stuff is um, in LA, what, what we do, what you and I do or our neighbors do is that, hey, um, there's a private selection of ethic. I do what I want. I do my thing. I'm an adult. You do your thing. There is a private selection of what you want to do. And then there is a public expression, which is often what? Very, very public and very, very graphic. <laughs> so I have a private selection. This is what I want to do. And yet, it's, I'm going to flash it to the world. I'm going to flash it to the world, a public expression. This is what Christianity offers. It says no. Let's have a public communal selection of the ethic. And let's have a very private expression of that. Do you, do you see that? This is what Wendell's getting at. This is what Paul is getting at. Um, Non-communal standards for a sexual ethic will feed injustice. Um, now, Ray Ortland just released a book. I read the review. I haven't dove into the book yet. So this is kind of... I could say a lot of wrong things here. All right. <laughs> I'll just quote the, it's called The Death of Porn. And he has this uh, idea there. I read this in the review um, uh, that supply is um, feeding demand so much that he thinks that um, pornography and is a social justice issue attached to who it consumes. It's based on what, pe what and who is paying for it. Um, 
I read two academic papers on, um, uh, they were massage parlors slash brothels. Those are not the same thing in the SGV, but they, this paper, the first paper examined um, New York City and LA because they could get a lot of data. And so this is what they found out um, with uh, both NYC and LA that was consistent in this paper. Um, the clustering of massage parlors that we have in San Gabriel Valley, um, and by clustering, I mean concentration of, okay. It's not based on city and license regulations or state regulations. That's not why they cluster in certain areas. Um, it's not based on political leaning. So it's not Democrat or Republican areas. It's not based on that. Um, it's not based on police or enforcement officials in uh, like enforcing what's going on in these establishments um, or the lack thereof. Um, it's not based on that. The clustering is based on uh, number one, economic disadvantage. In San Gabriel Valley, they found that clustering of massage parlors would happen around Chinese immigrants, not just Chinese, but Chinese immigrants. So they had very little legal or positional power. So they were not wealthy and they didn't have a positional power. Um, uh, second, it was Chinese and Hispanic immigrants, far and away. So it wasn't just Hispanics or Chinese, it was immigrants, the weakest. All right, same study. Um, no, excuse me. Second study um, uh, examined consumers of. Typical consumer, middle-aged man, higher middle wage to high class with lots of disposable cash. Here, all right, here, I'm going to distill these two papers for you. Here's the big picture. The wealthy consume the weak. Do you think it's a social justice issue? Um, this is my point. It's communal. We're not talking about individual choices here. Private choices, consenting adults, I paid for it. Sex is a communal task. Uh, well, Lauren Renner writes this in Real Sex. She says, um, it's communal. Marriage contains sex. Marriage is not adorned by it. All right, last statement I want to make. I'm not going to unpack this fully, but it's, it's good. Um, you're not your own, Paul says. An addressment to a sexual ethic. You're not your own. I am not my own. I'm God's. I'm not my own. I'm God's. All right, Heidelberg Catechism. It's a beautiful, warm, old catechism. There's some catechisms that are really um, stilted and cold and, and theologically rigid and not communicative to your heart, but Heidelberg is really sweet. I love it. And in the first question, it's not the full answer, but it says, this is the very first one. What are you going to lead with in a catechism? And this is the first one in Heidelberg. Um, what is your only comfort in life and death? that I'm not my own, but I belong with body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful, faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. It goes on to talk about like, not one hair of my head can be taken from me without my God, my Father, allowing it to happen because I belong to him. Now, because of that, listen to this. I want you to listen to this small, small point. 
um, we can lose sight of this, is like sex is God's idea. <laughs> I know you don't want to, they're like, no. Like, you didn't come up with it, I didn't come up with it, we didn't culturally come up with it. Like, uh, just uh, push your imagination. Who designed all the nerve endings? God. He designed all the parts. God. Can you, what? Can you say that, Tim? Yes. Who designed all the sensation? Your God did. Um, my God did. My God did. Your God did. And I'm not my own. I belong to him. I'm not my own. I belong to him. Um, this is often accredited to G.K. Chesterton. It's actually Bruce Marshall. There's this massive flame wars online about how G.K. Chesterton did not write this quote. It's Bruce Marshall. Okay, the young man who rings the door at the brothel is unconsciously looking for God. There are desires here that are actually misplaced, but they're beautiful desires. The problem is I want the sex without God. But look, you will never have it fully. I will never have it fully if we don't have him. Here's something for you to believe tonight. Here's something for you to believe. My God will walk me into pleasures forevermore. That's the psalmist speaking. Based on his, his, his equipment, his design, his ideas. He knows. He knows my longings more than I do. I'm his, not my own. I'm his, not my own. Sex is a communal thing. Because we're what? We're joined to the triunity and then we're joined to God's people. All right, those are good things. Sex is communal. Sex is God's idea. Great, Tim, that's awesome. Third point. Um, the, but that has no power to heal your sexual brokenness and my sexual brokenness. That has no power. I can tell you, and you're like, yeah, that's lovely. That will not help me this next week. I know myself too well. Yep, you're right. The knowledge won't heal you. We can't do it. You've been sexually mistreated. I've been sexually mistreated, confused. We've dabbled in explicit games and enticements. We all have. And you're like, nobody, I know we haven't. Man, I have, I've been a pastor for a long time. Look, an 80-year-old woman, I am not making this up. A lady, 80-year-old woman came up to me after we were preaching on a lot of this stuff, and she said, Tim, she goes, I have been hiding um, Lady Chatterley's lover under my mattress for years. And she goes, and I live alone. Uh, a 78-year-old woman. So uh, I know I've been hammering the guys, and you're like, oh, this is such a guy problem being sexually broken. No, it's not. No, a 78-year-old woman comes up to me, and she says this. She says, all right, Showtime was giving me um, uh, the tutors for free. And she goes, I loved watching the tutors because the, 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 the sex is so romantically steamy. The things you hear as a pastor... And she goes, I had a free trial. She goes, I bought Showtime because I did not want the tutors to go away. It's not a dude problem I'm talking about. You know that. You're broken. I'm broken. We dabbled in explicit games and enticements. We all have. We all have. So I'm going to be really careful here. You are sexually broken. And if you don't know that, you do not know yourself yet. I am sexually broken. And we long, I know we're longing for something beautiful. 
I know we are, but it's scratched and it's warped. And some of us, it's just indistinct. I don't, I'm not sure even I know. What is the path forward in a city following Jesus, shaped by Jesus? Uh, I know one thing for sure, is you haven't fixed it by yourself, and I haven't either. You haven't fixed it solo, neither have I. Not by ourselves. Now the clue is in Paul's beautiful vision. The clue to your wholeness and my wholeness is in Paul's beautiful vision. Here it is. Paul knows this, and we know this from 1 Corinthians, especially the first chapter, the gorgeous chapter about the foolish cross, is you know this, I can't outcross the cross in my sexual brokenness and neither can you. We know that. That comes from 1 Corinthians. You can't outcross the cross. All of us can approach the cross with every single bit of that crazy sexuality and that brokenness that we have. We can go to the cross and the cross never turns away any of us, ever. There's forgiveness for anything and everything. You cannot be more deviant than what the cross is and that's why the cross lets everybody come to it. So that's, we know that first part. Second part is this. When Paul says we are not our own, this is what he means. The Jesus-formed path in broken sexuality cannot be walked alone. It cannot be walked alone. So modernity will tell you this. Modernity will say, I'm, I'm mine, I'm my own, I do what I want. I make my own, I call my own shots. I make my own decisions. I follow my desire. And then I might belong to a community like a family or friends. And then I belong to a community called maybe humanity. But I start here first. And the Christian ethic says this. No, I am God's first. I, I am God's first. And then second, even before I get to myself, I belong to his people. I belong to a community. And then a broader community. And then I belong to myself. It flips it. It flips it. That's why Paul is radical when he says, you're not your own. Um, The cross buys us back into God's household, to use Wendell Berry's term. And we're bought to be brought into that household again back into the community, back into the community of the Trinity. First of all, we have union with Christ. We have his spirit now. And then unity with his people who also have his spirit. So this is what this means now. I'm going to go back to this. Your sexual wholeness is not reliant on you figuring this out solo. It's not. That's where you're getting killed. You're getting killed. So am I. Now, you know what it means? It means I have God's spirit. That means my spouse has to be a part of my progression towards sexual wholeness. And I don't mean it in a transactional using sense. I mean it this, as she walks with me in my brokenness. I used to conceive of my wife as what? The appropriate cop to my life and my sexual brokenness. And I always conceived of it is that I would go away, I would, I would fix Tim's junk in isolation, and you'll get killed in isolation. 
I'm just saying now you got to pull your spouse in and say, you're walking with me in sexual brokenness. Have you, that might be the first thing you do. And then not just your spouse, but you're going to say, I'm going to walk with my sexual brokenness in a Jesus shaped community. Who's not shocked by it. You're not going to fix this alone. I've seen this over and over and over again. You know what you will do is you'll have this cycle, and the cycle is this. Um, You're going to act out. You're going to feel lots of shame, lots of self-incrimination and condemnation and repentance, resolve, try hard. Temptation builds. It beats you. You start acting out, and then you have shame and self-incrimination and condemnation. You do not have the power to fix this alone. That's proven, and it's not just proven by recovery groups. Paul says this in verse 12. Um, Don't be dominated by anything. All things are lawful, but all things are, uh, not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Isn't that proof to yourself? You cannot stop the thing you want to stop. Doesn't that tell you who owns you? Doesn't that tell you where the power comes from? And it's not the individual. You can't stop. All right. If you don't think this is a Jesus-following community that won't have any shock at your sexual brokenness, you need to find another Jesus-following community that, that doesn't have shock at the brokenness and they assume that sexual brokenness. And, and, and if you said something, they'd be like, you too? Yeah, me, I'm also sexually broken. Come on, let's go to the cross and let's find wholeness together, together, together in community. You are not your own. You are not your own.